Welcome to the Find Your Form podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jake Wells. My guest today is the first American woman to summit Mount Everest via the North Face in 2001 and the Southeast Ridge in 2002. She was voted 2002 Colorado Woman of the Year, and she's a coach and manager for the U.S. Women's Mountain Running Team. Please welcome Ellen Miller. Ellen, thanks for being here. Ellen Miller, great that we were able to put this together. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. So a little bit about you real quick. You know, talking to um, just random local folks here in our our valley, you know, people um, know of you. Um, You know, I think you're very involved in the community and as a as a endurance coach um, and you you know you do your interval training in Vail that people are um, aware of and know of you for those classes or those interval um, meetings that you could do workouts that you take people through and then um, I think most people that I've chatted with have a general idea that that you were summited Everest I don't think people understand how much else you've done like beyond that like that you were not only have you summited, which is a huge accomplishment for, for anyone, but also to be the first female American to summit twice for, from two separate approaches. Um, and then to have the Everest trilogy um, kind of under your belt as well is a pretty, pretty huge accomplishment. And a lot of people are surprised to hear when I say that, that you've, you've done those things and you're just like, you know, normal walking around <laughs> Bale Valley, like just cruising through Edwards. Um, well, I've, you know, I'm an aging athlete now, Jake. I'm not, I've never been a big self-promoter, but even back when I was involved with that, I would do just enough self-promotion to get some sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm an introvert at heart, extrovert at work. I can be an extrovert, but I'm, I'm kind of shy and an introvert in many parts of my life. So mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm a, a bit reserved about that. And um, I don't know, I think the the mantra of my life is just to be happy and helpful and humble. Mm-hmm. So that's how I prefer to, to walk through life. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, in the current climate, what we were actually just chatting about was with the social media element of things that, that um, and, and, how that wasn't really a part of it wasn't even around it wasn't even a thing because you when you first summited that was 2001 Mm -hmm. um you know and i don't know when i can't remember when facebook was probably just getting going in the in the late 1990 like 1996 seven Mm -hmm. so you know none of like instagram and twitter and any of that stuff was around so um you know and i went through a little bit of that whenever i was getting my start at, as a professional athlete as well of, you know, the, the way that you would go about getting these sponsorships or these relationships with, with sponsors was to meet them face to face. Um, you know, there was the, um, interbike trade show every year Mm -hmm. out in Vegas. So, you know, that's usually in the fall. And so people would bring their resume, you know, and you just (laughs) walk around Mm -hmm. to the booths of Mm -hmm. the people that you wanted to approach and say hey here's who i am here's what i've done mm-hmm. and you had to have like a, a a printout you know like something to hand them yeah that's what i would do at outdoor retailer mm-hmm. for many years in salt lake city yeah trying to obtain at least gear sponsorships so. sure yeah well and that was um 
I mean, because of the shift now that we've seen with uh, social media, you know, it's a lot easier, I think, for people to get themselves out there, but you still have to be um, Mm self-promoting, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that was a thing that I figured out in my career of, okay, you know, no one's going to knock down your door just because you get X, Y, Z result, you know? No one's going to just say, hey, we want to give you money or or support or uh, equipment or anything like that. You've got to um, support or, you know, ask for that support and promote yourself. And you also have to ask the question, like make that ask of like, well, what do you want? Like, okay, you, you gave me this great thing that says, you know, here's who I am and here's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's something that we would want to get behind as a brand, but what do you want? You right. know? And it, it took me a while to even figure that out of like, if you don't ask, like, here's what I'm asking for, you know, right. I'm asking for, you know, $5,000 to help with travel expenses mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I need, you know, this many tires or this many wheels or whatever, you know? And, um, so you just have to figure that stuff out and, and working with young athletes now, they don't have that figured out, you know, and they're, they're trying to figure, they're trying to look at your career and say, well, how did you pull that off? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so you're trying to explain to them how they have to promote themselves, but but it's tough now, Jake, and it's so competitive. And I feel for these young athletes because it is expected of them that they are on social media and that they will try and build a huge following. And and companies that are interested in sponsoring athletes, that's what they look at. Mm-hmm. So if you have even a great, you know, I work with the U.S. mountain running team. If you have a great young athlete, they can be the best mountain runner in the world. But it almost seems like if they don't have that presence on social media, they're not going to get the same kind of support, not nearly the same kind of support as a person that's out there really promoting themselves. So it's very, you know, it's tough for people that are more introverted. And, um, you know, technology is not everybody's thing. Right. And well, especially if you're training your ass off. That's right. You know? Well, like that's if what you're out there actually do putting in the work that it takes to be successful at these events. Yeah. You don't have time to take a selfie at the top of every climb. That's you know? kind of what I was, you know, back then during my climbing days, I was so focused on preparation and training. I wouldn't have had time to, mm-hmm. you know, organize a Facebook page or an Instagram page or mm-hmm. put myself out there like that. Yeah. And I always, I mean, you, then you see these influencers, right? You have, mm-hmm. you have the professional athletes that have their following and have their, um, their, their, they're, I guess it, it, you look at it as it's got to be authentic, mm-hmm. right? Like it's mm-hmm. their authentic voice that's being put out there. Mm-hmm. But then you have these people that are just quote unquote influencers and like they're never taking their own photos. No. You're like, who's taking no. that photo? You know, no. if you're yeah. out there training, like do you just have someone that's running with you just to take your shot? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting dynamic that we are, are seeing, you mm-hmm. know, because there are those brands that see that value Mm-hmm. but you know, do you really want to support those athletes to do those amazing things? Or do you want to support someone that is maybe appearing like they're doing those amazing things? Right. And then you, and then it's a question of what's authentic and what's superficial. Mm-hmm. And I think it's happening in all sports across the board. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you're saying. They're the people that are producing results. And then there are the folks that are participating not producing results, but they look really good. And yeah. they're probably kind of good for the sport because they're promoting the sport. So producing content. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I assume that there's place for, for both, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's room for both, but 
um, I think the what where I struggle with it is when that those brands decide to put money behind, you know, the influencer versus mm -hmm. the athlete, mm -hmm. you know, like. Um, and that's why it's so competitive. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why it's tough. Yeah. Whenever you were preparing for those events, so so um, your first summit attempt, um, was that your first summit attempt whenever you summited? Was it 01? Yes. Yeah. I was lucky that with Everest, I got to the summit on both times I attempted mm. because it doesn't usually work out yeah. like that. Um, for example, it took me three attempts on Mount McKinley to get to the summit because of various weather patterns. Mm. But I was lucky on Everest. Yeah. I got to summit the first time. Yeah, because I can only imagine like living here, you know, for me, my first real uh, exposure to Everest was I read the into thin air mm -hmm. with, you know, John, John Krakauer. Krakauer. Yeah. yeah. Um, a great book. Mm -hmm. And, and for me at the time it was, it, I mean, I was a senior in high school when that um, expedition happened in 96. Mm -hmm. So that book came out um, in 97 and, or that's when he wrote it. I don't know when exactly it came out, but um, I definitely remember that book book kind of speaking to me that adventurous side of me you know and um everest in and of itself mm -hmm. but i was also you know growing up in the ozarks you know i was very adventurous mm -hmm. you know we grew up kind of out in the country on a farm and had kind of room to roam you mm -hmm. know and and as, as an endurance athlete i was um drawn to that solo time, mm -hmm. you know, and I think yeah, that's what yeah. kind of what, what you were getting at or what you were saying is that the, these athletes are so often they're, they're by themselves. They're, they're training by themselves. They're not really recording anything or maybe they are, you know, keeping a, a training journal or a log, but they're not really, you know, they're, they are that introverted mm -hmm. person. They can be, you know, outspoken and, and extroverted in social settings, but, but they find these, these missions, you know, mm -hmm. that they are drawn to. And because of that introversion, you know, yeah. and, um, and they kind of seek that. Mm -hmm. I but, think particularly with high altitude mountaineering, mm -hmm. a lot of us that participate in that sport are just kind of rugged individualists. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had exposure with team sports and all of that, but a lot of us are just, are loners. Mm -hmm. And, and that, um, climbing has that appeal, you know, we can just kind of get into our own heads and, and figure out, you know, for me, going into the high mountains, I just wanted to learn, you know, what am I made out of? Yeah. And who am I? What, how tough am I? How thoughtful am I? How, um, how am I with calculated risk? You know? So. Yeah. And so did you do a majority of your training in the Vale area whenever mm -hmm. you were preparing for those? Yeah. Well, you know, my mountaineering career has been very long. These mm -hmm. days people kind of want to just go to Mount Everest right off the bat. And my, I had been climbing for 25 years before mm -hmm. I ever had the opportunity to go to Everest, but certainly those years before Everest, I was living in the Vale Valley and doing a lot of training here, whether up in the Gore Range or over in Summit County or out on remote 14ers or um, East Vale has incredible world-class ice climbing mm -hmm. where I spent a lot of time with, you know, working on steep, more technical ice terrain and rope skills. Um, you know, rock climbing is bountiful. So, yeah, most of my training was here. And particularly the season, 
you know, we go to climb Everest in the springtime. So the winters before I went to climb Everest, I spent a lot of time on Vail Mountain. You know, at that time, the snow, <laughs> the snowcat drivers up there, they're like, we've never seen somebody that spends so much time going uphill on this mountain because I would be out there in the dark at 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m., hiking up or skinning up or carrying a pack up or doing whatever. So um, I worked hard, you know, on Vail mm-hmm. um, or Arrowhead or Beaver Creek or wherever those seasons before I would. Did you have a, a idea of what you were doing? Or I mean, did, I mean, did you, were you just like, I'm just going to carry this pack because this is hev- how heavy it's no, going to be? No, I mean, and... because I had the background as an endurance coach, you know, there's general training and there's specific training. So yeah, I, I had a pretty, a pretty good handle on my, you know, kind of general training days or if I was going to the gym and then specific skill training days. We didn't have the kind of science that's available to us now, as mm-hmm. you know, in the coaching world, you know, the world of physiology is changing so quickly because basically scientists are able to measure things that they couldn't measure 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything from blood work to muscle fibers to mitochondrial density or you know, whatever is happening. We didn't have that kind of information back then, but I, we definitely overtrained back then. I'll say that, Jake. I think a lot, of, a lot of us that were endurance athletes living in the Vail Valley back then, we didn't understand the importance of rest. Sure. You know, we we didn't understand um, how we, you know, we. We didn't understand that by resting, it would actually, in the long run, make us a lot faster, stronger, fitter, you know? We right. just kept going, 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 and pushing, pushing, pushing. So now the science is, you know, kind of beat us over the head with that message, you know, mm-hmm. that rest is just as important as the hard training days. Um, and without the rest, those hard training days, you know, the adaptation to those hard training days probably isn't going to happen. Um, you know, we can train smarter now. So. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to talk to some of the older riders here in the Valley that have had huge success in their careers, mm-hmm. you know, like Mike Closure and oh, yeah. Peter Davis and some of these other guys that I looked up through, mm-hmm. but looked up to growing through my cycling career. And um, and that science was not a part of their training. You oh, know? no. And Mike like, still doesn't rest. No. Right. I know. He still hasn't figured out block I've raced with Mike before. <laughs> we never rest back then. We never. No. Yeah. Yeah. But we learned a lot from Mike, so I yeah. love Mike. Yeah, Mike's yeah. one of my he, favorite teammates. Good he's guy. He's an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And But I think that that's what, um, again, like that's one of the draws of, of those kind of events is like the training, mm-hmm. you know. And one, it's easy to overtrain when it's something you love, you mm-hmm. know, like you yeah. love being out there. And yeah. um, so when you would go ice climbing in Eastvale, you, I'm assuming you would have a partner for that. Oh, right? yeah. Like you're on belay. Oh, a bunch of, yeah. I had a bunch of different people we would go climbing. Yeah. yeah. But how do you prepare for like in Everest on Everest? You know, one of the the trickiest parts is that Kumbu Icefall, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, how do you prepare for that if you're not in that terrain? Like that seems that seems super dangerous to yeah. navigate. Number one, but in the less time you want to be there. You, you want to be there a bit better, right? Yeah. So the Kumbu Icefall has a little bit of te- technicality in it, and I felt okay about that because I, you know, was climbing technical ice at the time. Um, it's a question of a decent level of fitness because you want to get in and out of there as quickly as possible. 
and more mental toughness, Jake. I've seen the Kumbu Icefall totally break climbers. I mean, I've had guys on my team after their first trip in the Icefall, they come back to base camp and they're like, I'm done. I'm going home. Wow. I'm not going to spend any time in there. It is. So I think there's a mental component where you're, you know, climbing over crevasses and you're looking around at all of these, you know, blocks of ice that, or Cirex or, you know, obstacles that could basically fall down and kill you. So you have to be quite thoughtful about when you go into the ice fall, the days that you avoid the ice fall. Uh, we would always go super early in the morning when the, the temperatures were the coldest mm -hmm. um, because we thought things would be a lot more stable then. You know, other teams chose to go later in the day when the sun was out. And, you know, for me, that would have been nerve-wracking, but for them, they were more comfortable climbing. You know, they wanted to have daylight to see rather than climbing with a headlamp. So... Um, How big is it? It seems like on the pictures, it just looks it's huge. vast. It's huge. The first time through the ice fall takes us about five hours, you know, oh, winding. Wow. Oh, yeah. And then by the time we're acclimatized and we're going up there for the, you know, ninth or tenth time of the expedition, we could get through in about three hours mm -hmm. because we were moving that much faster. And also by that time, most of our stuff was up there. So our yeah. tents, you know, our camps were set and we were getting ready to so go. So you'd have to go center. up. Oh, yeah. We and go. And back down yeah and we do this nine times a bunch yeah because one your body's acclimatizing every time we go up to a higher elevation uh the stimulus of altitude is encouraging our bodies to produce more red blood cells which in the on a summit day that's going to really support our effort um the second reason is we do have to get all of our gear up there you know food and fuel and oxygen cylinders and tents for the high camp and you know yeah. rope and we had to, you know, get our stuff up there. So it's a long process. Um, these days, of course, a lot more climbers are training at home with hypoxic tents. Um, and I have never done that, so I can't speak to that. But they're trying to spend less time on the mountain acclimatizing the way that we used to. But I, I wouldn't trade anything for those forays through the ice fall, we call them, because, um, you know, the first time you climb up to 20,000 feet, let me tell you, it feels awful. You know, your head is banging. It's just a sickening kind of a feeling. But you know what, Jake? The third time you go up there, you're like, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good. I can take some photos and I can, you know, cook. You know, I can operate with the cook stove in my tent a little better and I am not as cold. And it's the acclimatization. You know, the human body is such a miraculous machine. And that's, um, I got to experience a lot of those miracles you know, in the acclimatization pro process at extreme high altitude. Right. It gives you an appreciation for it, to be able to see it. Yeah. And feel you know, it. when you get there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because, I mean, I'm assuming looking at the pictures of that ice fall, it just looks, seems so daunting that there's no real path. No. You know, so are, are people... Sherpas fixing ropes yeah. for you? There's one team of Sherpas and they're called the Icefall Doctors and they're a designated team and they fix the route through the Icefall. Mm. Um, you just simply can't have climbers wandering off sure. on their own and it's just too dangerous. So the Icefall Doctors, you know, we all um, fund the Icefall. All of the climbers pitch in and fund these guys because they're the guys that are really up there looking around and placing the ladders and fixing the ropes and deciding on the on the route that all of us will use. What so, are the ladders for? Crossing the crevasses. 
So they're horizontal. They're like they're garden. Not, you're not like climbing up it. Yeah, sometimes you're climbing up them. Mm. Sometimes you're climbing up them. And then it's like a garden variety ladder that just goes across a crevasse. Mm-hmm. You know, like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know our audience can't see what I'm mm-hmm. showing you, yeah. but um, yeah, they'll just lay the ladders. And you just walk, you know, we're, we're always roped up, but you just walk across the rungs of the ladder with your boots and crampons on and... Obviously no rails, you know? Yeah, so well, there's ropes. There's we're ropes. Oh, yes, gotcha. so you can hang on to A ropes. A little bit. But it's, you know, they're... How hard is it to walk? Are there metal well, ladders? <laughs> they're metal ladders. I, before I ever went to Everest, I lived up in the Vale Commons at the time. I would put up a ladder between two parked cars. Like on the roof? On the roof. And that's how I would train. <laughs> Did you know whose cars they were? Yeah. <laughs> they were mine and my neighbors. But my neighbors would be like, oh, they're shaking their heads. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put on my crampons now. So I hope I don't scratch your car. But um, yeah, I would just get out there and practice. And I always encourage, you know, I've consulted with a lot of, especially women that are going to Everest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm coaching them or consulting with them, I'm always like, do your ladder practice because you do not want to get in the Kumbu icefall and flip when you're on a ladder and you're looking down into a dark crevasse that you cannot see the bottom of. You know, you want to be able to just have those skills dialed in so you can get right across. So what makes that feature? Why is that? Is it a waterfall that's frozen? Why do they call it the icefall? Yeah, it is. It's a glacier. It's a glacier that's flowing downhill. Got it. So okay. sometimes when, you know, when the water is flowing over the hill, it will, the ice will crack open. Mm-hmm. That's what forms those crevasses. Mm. So geographically, it's a very interesting feature on the south side of Mount Everest. And Okay, um, so that's from the... Tibet side. That's from the Nepalese oh, sorry, side. The Nepalese side. Yeah. Yep, right. And on the on on the um, north side, which is Tibet, we don't have the Kumbu ice fall. You have some little ice walls, but nothing of that magnitude. Mm. Not that kind of glaciation. We start up our our advanced base camp on the north side is at twenty one thousand feet. So we're living at twenty one thousand feet, um, and starting to climb much higher. Yeah. The base camp on the south side, on the Nepalese side, is at about 17,000 feet. So, you know, that's, Is that a substantial amount like for you? Is, it is for notice, me. Yeah. It is for me. Yeah. If, if I'm going to be living in a tent for, you know, a month, yeah, there's a big difference between 17 and 21. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for us, you know, if you're here at 7,500, mm-hmm. just going down to Denver, yeah. you know, that's only 2,000 feet, maybe 1,500 mm-hmm. and difference. And it's... I mean, I, I noticed that I sleep a lot better oh, at, yeah. in the front range than oh, yeah. I do when I'm up here, mm-hmm. you know, so. And the cold, the, you know, mm. it was the, the north side of Everest is, you know, being up there at 21, it's cold and you're not really getting, it's hard to get a lot stronger up there. You're, right. you're adapting right. to the altitude, but you're not building any muscle fiber. You're not putting on any weight. You're not, you know, if you have little injuries they're not healing up there <laughs> yeah cuts and stuff yeah 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 but that's still below the quote-unquote death zone right yeah you know when we talk about that or when i talk about the death zone mm-hmm. and and it's you know people talk about it in different ways some people think the death zone is above twenty thousand feet but for me because i've been in the world of extreme high altitude i think of the death zone as being above 24 25 26 thousand feet mm-hmm. um it's just a place where you don't want to spend a whole lot of time. You want to get in there, try to get to your summit, and get out of there as quickly as possible. You don't want to expose yourself to that. Yeah. Um, so when, when you were at that the 20, 000, 21,000 feet camp, mm-hmm. is that 
what, what do you call that? Camp advanced two? base camp. Advanced base camp. Mm -hmm. Are you using much supplemental oxygen there? No, no. At that point, we're not. You know, on both of my expeditions, I went with expedition operators that are old climbing friends of mine. And the expectation was that the climber could climb to 25,000 feet without the use of supplemental oxygen. That was kind of like the test. Mm -hmm. um, and then above there, we would start using supplemental oxygen. So the whole time we're down there, you know, 21, 22, 23, we're just climbing without supplemental oxygen and, and hoping that our bodies are acclimatizing. So, Right. Wow. So, how, I mean, I know that looking at the price of a trip, like I, mm -hmm. you just Google, like, how, how much does it cost to go to Everest? Oh, it's it's anywhere now. from, <laughs> you know, $25,000 to mm -hmm. $120,000, depending yeah. on what you're looking for. I think these days it is. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, and so when you were living here yeah. in the early 2000s, late 1990s, mm -hmm. what, what were you, how were you supporting that? It was all, that was all just I went into Alpine sponsors? Bank. I had some, some financial sponsorship, but I went into Alpine Bank and took out a loan. Really? Yep. It took wow. me six years to pay it off. Wow. That's a, and they yep. were able to, they were. Back then. Like, yeah, I want there to go to Everest. There was an Alpine well, Bank. Go. I was managing this little natural food store in Crossroads, and the Alpine Bank was right across the parking lot. And yeah, we said, sure, Ellen, we'll give you, you know, 10, 10 grand. Wow. Um, I was also, and, and to be fair, I w this, particularly the second expedition, I was working for Guy Cotter, who was the expedition operator, leading treks up to Everest Base Camp. So I got an employee price, sure. <laughs> which is yeah. not much. Um so back then, you know, it was costing me, well, I would say with airfare to Asia, which is not, I would say it wasn't costing me more than 20 grand per trip yeah. to go there. Um, and that was everything included. Right. These days, you know, I, I kind of chuckle with people now because I say to people, it's like, I feel like I've gotten priced out of my own sport. Right. Because to go on a major Himalayan expedition now, I can't afford it. Right. And it's crazy. Um, I would have to work some kind of a special deal, but back then, you know, I feel like that's why they were great opportunities for me. Um, and I wanted to take advantage of them. As a matter of fact, the second time I climbed Everest, I hadn't, that, that wasn't my main focus. I was going to work to lead treks in the Kumbu up to Everest base camp. And Guy Cotter, the expedition operator who I was working for said, would you like for me to put your name on the Everest permit in case you, you know, wrap up your treks early and you want to climb? Mm -hmm. I was like, sure, guy, that sounds good, you know. And lo and behold, I wrapped, the weather was great, wrapped up my treks early, went back up. My boyfriend at the time was guiding on Everest. So we're all up there having a great time. And I was climbing, you know, and I had told very few people that I would be climbing, but the ones that I had told, I said, I'm not going to go for the summit a second time unless it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, Jake, you know, the weather pattern, it's like, wow, this is looking like it might be pretty good. I got up to high camp and it was kind of miraculous that there was no wind and the temperatures were tolerable and the sky was full of stars. It's like, I would be a fool not to at least try to go to the summit again. You know, I'm here. I've got the opportunity. The weather's perfect, you know. And so I had never planned to climb Everest from both sides. You know, that wasn't some 
strategy that I had. It's just the way that my life unfolded. And that's hard for a lot of younger athletes these days to, to grasp because everything is really, you know, kind of planned out a lot of times for them. But for me, it was like, nope, that's just the way it happened. And I just took the opportunity. So I was very, very lucky that I had great weather. I had great leadership on both trips. My particular trips, I had no drama. There was drama on my teams. I don't really talk about that much because I don't feel like those are my stories to tell Mm -hmm. with some of my teammates. But for me personally, I had two just solid efforts. And, And that's kind of my style is just I really like to just keep my head down and keep my mouth shut one step at a time and get to the summit. And that's just, oftentimes I don't even tell people I'm going climbing. My mom thought I was trekking in Nepal, you know, on that second trip. So when the media called her, she's like, (laughs) like CNN called my mom. Your daughter has just become the first American woman to climb Mount Everest from both sides. My mother's like, what's this? She told me she was going (laughs) trekking, you know. Um, So oftentimes I don't even discuss what I'm going to do before I do it. I only talk about it afterwards yeah. because um, because of the whole naysayers and, you know, yeah. mind stuff. Well, it goes back to that being humble as well, you know, and I think that that's um, something that is probably pretty normal for these this type of um, inner, someone that's driven internally mm-hmm. to do these things and, and it's not necessarily looking for that external... Um, gratification or glory you yeah. know um but so how, if you're if you would have been in that situation but you hadn't been on the permit then mm-hmm. you wouldn't be allowed to go up correct correct wow. no every climber that goes up on through the ice fall has to be permitted okay yeah wow so yeah for me it was not about making history i, I didn't understand that that was going to be the byproduct. it was about wow i have the chance to go up there again and it's magnificent what you see up there. You look out over the horizon and you start to see the curve of the earth, like wow. like airline pilots. I think they see this all the time up there at 29,000 feet. You know, and you look out over the earth and you're just up there. You feel like you're in the stars. And that's what was, that's the feeling I was chasing, you know, is just for one moment, I just want to stand as the highest person on the earth. Yeah. <laughs> one foot in Tibet and one foot in Nepal and just you know, have my moment and be grateful for my life. It wasn't about, you know, everything that has come to me since then. Mm-hmm. I feel really blessed because because I had that opportunity. I've, I've had the opportunity to sit here and talk with you or to speak at the ski museum or, you know, but I didn't think about those things ahead of that. Sure. Yeah, that so wasn't, it wasn't a plan. It wasn't a plan. On. Yeah. The emotion that you were seeking, yes. right? Yeah. 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 I couldn't imagine what that must feel like to be at the highest point mm-hmm. on earth yeah. at that time. Just for a moment, everybody just, you know, and that's what I found up on the summit of Everest. Nobody's pushing and shoving or <laughs> it's just like yeah. a bunch of people from all over the world and they just want one moment up there. And some people pray and some people chant and some people cry or whatever. They've taken their photo. But you know, it's just, everybody just wants a little moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. How long were you there? Like, how well, long do you guys hang out? Well, I was terrified. The first time I was up there, it was, you know, it was just kind of scary for me. So we were up there maybe 20 minutes. The second time I was up there, it was this big, bright, sunny day, no wind. I was up, we sat up there for an hour. 
And I said to my friends, I'm like, I think we should turn our oxygen off and save it because we're going to need it for the climb down because, you know, the, when we were climbing. So we did. We kind of took off our oxygen masks for just a little while and sat up there and talked to the other climbers and took some photos, <laughs> like high-fiving and back-slapping and all that stuff. Wow. It was really a moment I will never forget. And, you know... When I think of my, the happiest days, like in my life, it's those moments. I feel like we remember moments rather than days, you know. And that was one one of my brightest moments. And I love how it is people from all over the world, from all walks of life. You know, they're just showing up there because they want the chance to climb a mountain for very deeply personal reasons. And I think. In the end of the day, it's probably same for you. You know, you so, show up at a cyclocross race. Yes, you want to win, but you know, there's something deep in your heart that it gives you joy. It makes you happy. It, you know, it makes you feel good about yourself. And, um, you know, that's I think what carries us through. And there's this bond that you get. You know, it becomes your family. Oh yeah. Right? Like oh those, yeah. There's this bond through through. Um, challenge or mm-hmm. uh when you're when you're everybody's going through the same struggle whether you're you know in the in the podium top mm-hmm. three or you know fighting for not to get lapped or whatever you know like whatever your outcome is mm-hmm. you're all out there doing the same thing that's right you know? and there's that's this right. this interesting bond that happens that um you know in, in every season with cross it's you know it only happens from september to december so mm-hmm. Um, but that's your opportunity to see these faces again and mm-hmm. c- reconnect with those people. And I'm assuming it's very similar, in, especially in the climbing community. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Introspection through ordeal, we call it. There you go. <laughs> and you're sharing this this challenging situation with your fellow athletes and especially the people that I've shared time with on a rope. You mm. know, that rope has been our lifeline. And lifelong friendships. You know, right. those are the people that when I'm struggling here with another hip surgery or whatever, to, you know, those are the people that send me a note from Europe or from Asia and say, hey, how you doing? You're yeah. going to get through this. I know who you are. I know what you've been through. You know, they kind of have seen me when I've been at my strongest. So they're in a position to encourage me when I'm at my, my weakest. And that has been really a beautiful, you know, so gift from those relationships. Hip surgery. So yeah. you had... You climbed, you summited the first time. Yeah. So I was climbing ever. I climbed Everest before all the hip okay. issues. And then I had my, because I was a long distance runner <laughs> and I was predisposed, I had a pelvis that's kind of tipped forward. I wore out my hips. I wore out the cartilage in my hip joint. So I had to have my first artificial hip in 2008 and my second one in 2009. And then since then I've had some other hip issues but I did go on to climb for all of the people out there that all the runners out there that think that life is going to end after artificial hips it doesn't I climbed 8,000 meter peaks after I had artificial hips I climbed Lotse which is the fourth highest mountain in the world I climbed Monosalu which is the 10th highest or seventh highest mountain in the world you know I did big climbs after yeah. I had artificial hips so after the it's not a after life both after you, after both yeah yeah and I was over 50 then. 
So, you know, I mean, <laughs> no you know, I think people think, oh my gosh, I need an artificial hip. Life. Not cyclists, you know, can do super well with artificial hips. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, it's a testament to where we live, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that you surround yourself with certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because to say that, yeah, someone that's over 50 is here in our area, like, oh, yeah, they're going to go do, you know, Kilimanjaro or, mm-hmm. or uh, even bigger, even like Mount Everest or something like that. It's not it's not shocking, Mm-mm. you know, Mm-mm. you expect that. Like you said, you see people mm-hmm. consistently day after day climbing up Arrowhead or Vail Mountain. Mm-hmm. That's just their routine. It's just what they do, you know, and they stay young and they stay active and they, mm-hmm. it is truly a mental state. And you travel elsewhere in the country, even in, in the state, and it's not that way, no. you know, like. Um, We're lucky here. We're blessed. Here. Yeah. Yeah, if you could bottle that somehow and, you know, but that's hopefully what people can see is that, you know, through your, um, your slideshow, your, your um, different presentations that you do and, and these kind of interactions is that hopefully we can open people's eyes to the fact that, well, if Ellen Miller can, you know, climb 8,000 meter f- peaks with after having both hips replaced and in her fifties, I can do that. And I can at least, I can at least maybe not do that, but I can at least try, you know, this 5k. I was going to say, (laughs) if Ellen Miller can get her ass out there and do these local races, so can other people. And that's part of my message now as an aging athlete, Jake is to say, come out and have fun. Yeah. And the end of the day, when you're over 50, Nobody cares about the results anymore. What we care about is seeing each other out there and the camaraderie. Yeah, it's that that's, community again. It's the camaraderie, and that's what's important. It's like nobody's going to care what your time is at the Vail Mountain Winter Uphill. Just come out and have breakfast with us at the top, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's an event that you created or, or yeah. put together? Yeah. Um, Hooker Lowe and I, Linda Nellifson used to be the old gondola foreman at, at the Lion's Head Gondola many years ago, and Lyndon and I were... Um, on the sky running circuit together, we were both doing these high altitude marathons way back in the nineties and, um, 1990s. And we were traveling around the world. He and I had qualified to do these races in Europe and interestingly one on the Tibetan plateau. And Lyndon was killed at one of those races the day before the race. Um, he was previewing the course and he fell into a crevasse in Italy at the Monte Rosa race. And I was devastated because we were really close friends. And Hooker, his uh, best friend from here in Vail, was also devastated. So long story short, in Lyndon's name, we created this uphill race, the Vail Mountain Winter Uphill. And it's probably in its 14th, 15th year. I directed it for 10 years. And then I'm really lucky that Vail Rec wanted to take it over um, and operate it for us. It's still a fundraiser for the U.S. mountain running team because Lyndon actually helped to pioneer that team. He was one of the people that way back when rounded up a group of athletes from Vail and said, hey, we need to take a U.S. team to the World Mountain Running Championships. At that time, they were in Italy. And he did. He took a group of athletes over there. He's kind of an informal team, but he really pioneered that that team. And, of course, now we have a, an amazing team that's supported by USA Track and Field and you know, fully, the, Nike gives us the full kits, and so 
it has become a big, as a matter of fact, Joe Gray won the world championships in Patagonia just a few months ago. And our female champion, uh, Grayson Murphy, we had an American female champion too. So the U.S. mountain running team has really come a long way, but Lyndon helped to pioneer that. So that event that we do here in Vail just is in memory of Lyndon and still promotes the mountain running team. And, and my vision for it is just to bring locals together. We call it a race and a hike so that if people don't want to know their time or they don't want their time in the newspaper, or they don't want that competitive component, they don't have to have it. They can hike up there with their dog if they want to. We don't care. Just come out and join the fun, you know. So it just goes up Vail Mountain. Yep, yep. goes up Simba. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but you get some super competitive people. Oh yeah, Josiah. Josiah wins. Kim Dobson wins sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm expecting jo Josiah said he's going to be there, so I'm looking forward to yeah. seeing him hopefully win again. And he just runs up on micro spikes yeah, or something. He's yeah, he's usually on micro spikes. And you, but there's no rules about what kind of equipment you're on to go you can uphill. Pick your like I go. I like skis. Um, you can wear snowshoes, micro spikes, skis. Sylvan Ellefson came one year on his track skis, which was pretty gutsy, with little skins on them. Um, so. And that that's Lyndon's son. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's just a fun event where you can pick your pick your weapon and and race and have fun. That's so, cool. Yeah. We have people out there from I think there was an eight year old that did it one year, right up to eighty years old. Wow. So, yeah. That's so cool. It's a good community event. Yeah. And that's coming up, isn't it? Yeah, February 16th. All right. I'll put a plug for it. Great. Yeah, this, 7 a.m. This will probably not be out see, by then. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> com. Yeah, people can go and see how people did. Check yeah, out results. Yeah, and it's and there every year. So up for next we'll year. be there next year. Yeah. What? So the mountain running team? Yeah, right? U.S. So mountain explain running team. explain what that is because I don't know. It's, I mean, I know USA Track and yep. Field mm -hmm. um, is the governing body. Exactly. But is it, you said it's a marathon, so is it, is it? No, the mountain running team, typically our world championship distances are shorter than that. Okay. Um, has to be on dirt, obviously, and it has to, our courses alternate between uphill years, where the athletes are gaining probably 3,000 vertical feet, or an uphill downhill year. Mm -hmm. So um, this year in Patagonia, we had an uphill downhill, and it was about 15k for both the senior men and senior women and that's any athlete over 19 years old because we also have junior athletes from 16 to 19 um, that we take we take four junior men four junior women four senior women four senior men and um, we take the full squad um, this year the world championships it's an interesting venue it's going to be in the canary islands of spain Usually we're in ski resort type venues because mm -hmm. of the infrastructure is great for that type of an event. Well, it's called mountain running. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, courses can be incredibly technical. Um, Joe Gray lives down in Colorado Springs. He, he last year won the Pikes Peak Ascent and found that to be great training, you know, for, you know, his, his racing and he races a lot of these guys go to europe to race in the summer before our world championships which are typically in the autumn um but i'm so proud of the way the team has developed and we have interestingly here in the vale valley we have got some juniors that are really you know anita ortiz was on our team for yeah. many years 
And then her daughter came and won the world championships as a junior in Poland. Oh, wow. uh, Mandy Ortiz, yeah. So um, Battle Mountain has a reputation. And also the Blair girls, Samantha Blair and Jocelyn Blair, went to Patagonia with us, and they had great results. So the Vail Valley has a great reputation for producing um, high-quality you know, young mountain runners. So we currently have the male and the female Se- world the champions? Seniors. Yeah, we do. Americans. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's amazing that we don't know more about that. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I know it. That's what we think. <laughs> right. Like, why isn't that more, more, more well publicized? I know it. I know. And if you're, you know, people that are into like Trail Runner magazine and things like that, see it pretty regularly. But Joe Gray comes to the GoPro Mountain Games right. every year. He offers a fun run for the community. He's a great guy. Um, yeah, I mean, mountain runners are like mountain bike racers. They're just friendly, down-to-earth type people. So, and Are you a coach for them? I coach and manage the senior women's yeah, team. air quotes. <laughs> um, yeah, but having said that, a lot of these athletes have their own coaches, right? I mean, yeah. Joe's working with one of the best sure. coaches in the nation um, down in Colorado Springs. So we coach them perhaps for that specific event, and we help them with logistics getting to the event. Yeah, organize the, the team. It's like being the Olympic team coach. Yes. Like you're not telling these athletes how to train. No, you're just... no. If they ask me specific questions, um, of course, I will answer them. But these, by the time they qualify for our team, they know what they're doing. Of course. They're really right. good. So um, just being there at that event to support them is the most important way that we can give back to them, I think. Yeah, what well, really seems like running, especially the ultra endurance running, is really getting. Uh, um, you know, we went through this. I was a runner in mm-hmm. high school and college, and um, you know, we went through this big, uh, I guess, influx of of running when the jogging phase, you know, jogging came onto the scene. Like that was a, a thing back in the eighties, right? Oh, yeah. And then, oh yeah. Um, and then running kind of went through a bit of a. Um, hiatus and then now it seems like it's really coming back you know mm-hmm, and i think mm-hmm. um more well, so think, than just track you know like we see the track yes, on the, in yeah. the olympics every summer or every every four years in the summer olympics but you know to be able to see the is that a snowplow cruising by <laughs> sorry um you know to see what's happening on the ultra endurance side of things oh yeah you know and how we're just like slamming through these ceilings of What's oh, yeah. possible. That's right. That's right. Well, and you mentioned the word jogging. I almost think that that concept has also made a comeback because I work with a lot of aging athletes, women in their 50s and 60s, and maybe they've never run a 5K before. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They're getting out there, mm-hmm. and they're giving it a try. And we've got the Vail Valley Running Club now that, you know, a lot of beginners that were too afraid to try and run, and these are mostly trail runs, that they, they're getting out there. Yeah. And even if it's a mom with a kid in a stroller or somebody's coming out after work with their dog, you know, they're, they're getting out there and experiencing the beauty of running because they've never thought that they could do it before. Mm-hmm. So there's that, that resurgence, which is really awesome. I went uh, a few times this summer to the, the running club. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was blown away at how yeah. many people turn up. That's and right. How, you know, they meet every week. Yes. And they break up into different groups for different distances. And, yeah. you know, and some people just do the same route every week and uh-huh. some people change it up. And uh-huh. it's really impressive. It it's is. It's really cool to see. It's a great thing. It's but great. I think that the, like now, you know, back when I was 
you know, in, in high school, a marathon was so long, Yeah. you know, like mm -hmm. very few people were doing marathons and, and that was like the kind of the limit, I think for, at least for my exposure, yeah. you know, that was like, hey, you don't really do anything beyond a marathon. Mm -hmm. Now that's like a 5k for people, yeah, you know, like my sister is doing her, she did her first 50 miler really? this summer, <laughs> yep. you know? And so like she just did, she just paced a friend. Her friend did the hundred miler last weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think Oklahoma, somewhere, Texas, somewhere. And she paced her for like, you know, 25 miles, just a casual 25-mile <laughs> run. That's right. <laughs> okay. So ultras ultras are really growing. There's a lot more ultras yeah. now. Do a lot of the mountain runner teams or the uh, people that are on those mountain running team, do they do that distance or are they all just more? Because you said 15K. Yeah, they're pretty specific, yeah. Jake. Um, now, we do have a long distance mountain running team. Jim mm -hmm. Walmsley, the famous Jim Walmsley, um, great guy. He won Worlds, an American won Worlds in the long distance this year. And he, he really focuses on things like hundreds, mm -hmm. you know, and super long distances like that. But I think it's really fast or a really difficult if you're used to running fast like a joe gray for him to you know switch gears from and from an energy system point of view right to run a 50 miler i think he'd be like there's no way he wants to run a lot faster than that and he's geared to run a lot faster than that and i think some of our faster mountain runners have gotten into ultras as they start to age that's what i'm seeing yeah. The Anita Ortiz's. Anita was the classic example of that. She really started hitting the hundreds after, after she was, you know, done running super fast in right. shorter races. So. Yeah, after she's <laughs> slowed down. Yeah. Quote unquote. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think that was kind of the a similar path that I found. You know, it's like okay, I was racing cross country mountain bike stuff. Yeah. Got a little bit more into the endurance stuff, mm -hmm. but then I was still racing cross, which is a short. 45 yeah. minute to an hour long race. And then, and for so long, I would always just kind of say no to these events because mm -hmm. they didn't make sense. Like, well, you can't be fast at a 45 minute race and go do a 200 mile race. That's right. You know, yep. but then uh, actually now that I've done some of these long events. Yeah. You can carry your speed over. Yeah. Like it actually helps. It doesn't take away as much as I thought it would. And mm -hmm. if anything, it maybe pushes up that VO2 max that we all yeah. thought was like, well, that's said and, and science shows that you can't build that. Mm -hmm. But now studies are coming out to show that you can actually push that up by doing these, you know, really long, slow, I mean, not slow. I mean, so like we were talking before, you're still averaging over 20 miles. Yeah. An hour. You're, you're still, still moving pretty fast. You're clipping you along. Know, yeah. But, um, It'd be interesting to see what an uh, athlete like Joe uh, Joe Gray would benefit from, if if there would be a benefit, or it would just be the end of his, yeah. <laughs> his career. Yeah. But, and that's the that's the the gamble, you yeah. know. Like, well, is this going to take away from me because that window is so small mm -hmm. of being able to be at the pointy end of that of your that's of your right. sport? Mm -hmm. That do you really want to jeopardize that? We know this is working, so let's keep doing this, right? You know, and then but then like in Anita's case you you try something um later on in your career and you're like oh well this is actually working too mm -hmm. you know it feels better yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. I, I, so i want to go back to everest because i have some questions on because it's just so intriguing to me like the um one you know like you said you, there's the nepalese side and there's the, the tibet side mm -hmm. and you got to experience both of those mm -hmm. cultures deeply mm -hmm. right because you've spent a lot of time trekking in those areas and um, and 
that Buddhist mentality, you know, spending time with that, um, that culture and that religion, you know, what, how does that, how has that affected you? Like, do you feel like it's changed you in any way? Oh yeah. It's changed me a lot. I think, um, first of all, you're dealing with third world countries. Mm-hmm. So the people that live there, they don't have anything not compared to what we have. Right. So you're dealing with people that basically don't have anything, but they're so kind that they'll offer you anything that they do have. Whenever I take trekkers to Nepal, that's the first thing they, they notice. They're like, wow, you know, these people are just so kind and so generous and they don't have much, you know, they just, and so it's really helped me to spend time in those cultures to manage my life here in a place where we have more than enough. Yeah, great abundance here. <laughs> great wealth in this community. Um, it's given me the balance so that I can see where I am in the overall s- scheme of things from a much more balanced place. And um, that's been helpful to me. I-, I think, too, in a time, you know, these days where every emotions are so ramped up about our culture and politics and climate change, you know, just it's helped me to just be able to take a step back and to have that kind of thoughtfulness more of a meditative mind, less reactive mind, less reaction and more response um, as the Tibetans and the Nepalese operate. That's how they operate. Is They're not quick to react, but they'll just kind of step back and observe and say, okay, how do I want to compose a thoughtful response to this situation? And um, that's probably one of the greatest gifts that Climbing Everest has given to me is the gift of that culture and kindness and goodness and you know, seeing people do the best they can with what they've got. Sure. People that don't ask for much. Um, You know, I feel so blessed that I was able to get my hip fixed because I have three or four friends that live in Nepal that live with the same kind of pain that I had, and they'll never have the opportunity to get fixed. I think about them all the time. So it's just helped me to keep things in perspective You know, when I start to get a little whiny or get a little cranky or, you know, I'm like, you know, Ellen, I need to look at myself in the mirror and change my attitude because there are people that are really suffering and people that, you know, can do so much more than I can do with a whole lot less that, you know, it's just... It's um, easy to find gratitude. Absolutely. If you look for it. Absolutely. In almost any situation. Yep. There's always someone that has worse than you. Yep. So that's been, um, you know, a big eye-opener for me. And just how to treat people right, you Mm. know. Uh, Fairness and treating people well and paying people for the work they do. And, you know, it's just like, let's just be decent to each other. Yeah. So. Yeah. And those, like that Buddhist religion is a lot to do with... um, paying reverence. Mm-hmm. A lot right, of reverence and a lot of ritual and, and compassion. I think it's really steeped in compassion, being compassionate for each other, being compassionate for different creatures, being compassionate for the earth and what, what we're putting the earth through right now. It's, you know, just having feelings, being, being thoughtful, um, I think is kind of the way that philosophy works. And I, I don't claim to be, you know, a devout Buddhist or anything like that. I've just picked up 
observations and lessons along the way. But my Sherpa friends, whom I turn to a lot for that kind of wisdom, it's easy to pick up those lessons when I'm interacting with them. Their reverence for the mountains, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, American egos are really something in this world of sports, as you know, and this, you know, I'm going to conquer the mountain and I'm, you know, badass and I'm going to do this. You know, it, that's just not at all the way they approach climbing high mountains there. You know, to them, it's a very sacred place and it's a very special, rarefied, you know, atmosphere. And they're just much more thoughtful and um, mindful, yeah. Very mindful of those places. So, and you guys would do a ritual before every. Oh, yeah. Every expedition would start. Was that from base camp? Or yeah. Where would that start? We would have a puja ceremony. It's a blessing ceremony. In How do you each say it? Puja. Okay. It's P-U-G-A. And before you start the expedition, what you're doing is you're asking the mountain gods for safe passage when you're climbing. And you're, you're, you're making offerings in prayer. You know, we burn juniper. We toss rice. We put our food and our beers and our drinks out there and we um, bring our climbing gear to be blessed by the monks and the lamas and it's very ceremonial and then before we climb we actually set foot on the mountain every time before we climb we burn the juniper again as an offering to those mountain gods to watch over us and to keep us safe so um, I think more Americans than would talk about it have rituals in their lives, whether it's a morning prayer or an evening prayer, or they t spend time on a meditation cushion. I think that we do offer that reverence in our own ways, you know, probably in the privacy of our own homes. Mm -hmm. um, but there the rituals are very much shared and out in the open. Public. And yeah, they're very public and where everybody kind of participates. And Well, I remember in that... Um Krakauer book, you know, they talk about some of the debauchery that was happening at base camp and how that was like, yeah. they're going to upset the mountain gods. And, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, of course that, that expedition ended the way it ended. But I mean, was that something that you experienced when you were there of like seeing just like people that didn't have respect for what was actually going on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume saw. you would see it a lot now. You'd see it a more lot so now. now because uh, just so many more people are going and they're mm -hmm. just like, I'm paying. So I deserve mm -hmm. to get mm -hmm. to the top. Yeah. But yeah, we were worried about that. I mean, I was always, you know, we're in, whenever I visit a foreign country, whether it's Nepal or France, you know, I'm in someone else's home. Mm -hmm. It's like, I kind of need to play by their rules and be respectful. And so when we're in the Kumbu or in Tibet, you know, we're in, we're in their house and I just feel like we should play by their rules. And if they have a certain set of standards that they want kept in base camp, I'm happy to follow those. Um, but yeah, Jake, you know, just being respectful to them for their beliefs, I think was very important to me. And sure. you're right. I think that has diminished over time. Yeah. Sadly. Well, and I think that's not, um, I mean, in, in this world of technology that we live in now, it should be so easy to you know, pull up a web page and learn the history, you know, and, and for me, I don't know how that was ingrained in me growing up. I'm uh, blaming my parents somehow, but I was, I always felt like I needed to know the history of, you know, what I was experiencing. Like when I was a runner in college, you know, I wanted to know history of running, like what happened in the, you know, in the Olympics back in the seventies, whenever there were all the 
different turmoil that was going on in uh, you know in, in learning about not only American runners but also just world runners mm-hmm. and, and how their their history. Like one of the guys on our team was from Finland, and you know so we learned all about like Gabriel Selassie and all these different runners and um, from his area of of the world. You know, and so I've kind of carried that through with some of my other events that I do. And I get it. I kind of uh, have this routine where if I'm in a, in a city traveling for a race, I'll always uh, pull it up on Wikipedia or mm-hmm. just kind of learn about the history of the city. You know, oh, like yeah. almost like just not to be like fully taking advantage of the fact that I'm in the city and, and didn't know anything about Cincinnati. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't realize that you know, whatever, whatever the city I'm in, you know, yeah. and trying to pay homage even to the people, the local community, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, um, I, I don't know. I encourage young athletes to do that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but as a, as a climber, you know, to, to have these people like Sir Edmund Hillary that were these, you know, pioneers out there doing, um, what they do, what they did, what they achieved, you know, and, and, um, being some of the first people that have climbed these peaks, you ran into Sir Edmund Hillary's son, Peter Hillary. Yeah. On, the it South- wasn't on Everest. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, on it Everest. was on Everest. They were making a national geographic film Yeah, and he was part of that film. So we saw, we were descending and he was coming up and how, I mean, I don't know, to me, that would be like meeting like royalty, yeah. you know, of <laughs> in the climbing community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that a, I'm assuming that you're in this massive, this massive place, mm-hmm. you know, and there's mm-hmm. already a majestic and, and there's already this reverence for the mountain anyway. Mm-hmm. But then to see someone like that out there that you, for me, I would hold it in such a, a high respect Mm-hmm. And I, I did. Mean, what was that? What was that like? It was a so, touching moment. It was a very touching moment to meet him, and the fact that he. So what, his he, father was much more passionate about mountain climbing than Peter is, but P, the fact that Peter was on Everest and has climbed Everest yeah. too, I mean, he's a businessman, you know. Um, I think that's super impressive. I also have the same kind of reverence for. My friends that work on Everest as mountain guides, you know, guys like you that go there year after year after year to guide clients up there. My Sherpa friends that are working on the mountains year after year. My climbing partner, Nima Searing, he works, typically he's fixing ropes on some of these high, he's on a ro- just a s- small team of Sherpas that fixes the ropes, you know, and he's up there working. You know, I have that same kind of reverence. It's like, wow, you guys are here you know, year after year, dedicating your lives to this. And they're very passionate. They they still find beauty in almost every climb. But, um, you know, I have a lot of admiration for people that work in those mountains, and especially the history makers. You know, Mr. Dick Pownell, who used to live in Vail, he was a part of the 1963 American, the first American expedition to go to Mount Everest. And I would go over to his house and he'd show me old photos and we'd sit on his terrace and drink whiskey and he'd tell me about the old days. And it was, I'll never forget those memories. Mm-hmm. They were fabulous because he, you know, it was really difficult for them. They didn't have the same kind of high-tech fabrics and, you know, equipment that we have these days. 
um, to use. They were they were really pioneering. So. Yeah, I'd be interested to see that National Geographic. Um, oh yeah. Oh about. Have you did you watch the it? film? Yeah. I did watch it, and I could probably send you a link to it. Oh great. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be yeah. interested in checking it out. Yeah. Um, so, in your all of your travels and and adventures over all these different high peaks and um then throughout your other amazing adventures that you do and and endurance and activities your life you know it this has just become your your path your life Mm -hmm. right and like you said you didn't set out to to do any of this stuff specifically you know it just has these opportunities arise Mm -hmm. and you said yes mm-hmm. so what do you think would be one of the the top takeaways from these experiences that really like dri- directs the way you live your life a lot of younger athletes especially younger women ask me about taking an unconventional path and not having kids and not settling down and not going into a conventional marriage you know what? I've had a great life. I have no regrets. Um, so I think that for me, choosing not to have children was a good decision for me. Mm-hmm. It worked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've had great relationships with men. I've had the best boyfriends in the world. Um, but maybe not settling down in a conventional role as a wife, that's worked out pretty well for me too. Um so I think that just keep on listening to your heart and and for people to find what's meaningful to them. You know, what gives your life meaning? What, what really lights you up? You know, pay very close attention to the places you're in and the people you're with when you feel your best because that's a nice way to go through life, um, I have found. As I've gotten older, I'm, you know, when I was younger, I was really driven, and I was racing, and I was climbing, and, and um, I was searching for something different then, but now that I'm older, I'm in search of more calm. I'm in search of more peace. I'm in search of more ways that I can be of service. How can I give back? I had my heyday. I had my time in the spotlight. Now, how can I help the younger athletes? How can I be productive in my community? How can I give back to the trails that... You know, those trails that I ran on for so many years, so many miles, that's probably what kept me mentally healthy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, those wild places that um, just kept me healthy mentally and emotionally, how can I give back to them? You know, I think that the shift really happens when you get into your, when you turn 60 or may change different ages for other people, but the focus changes and I just live, I just live with a lot of gratitude, Jake. I'm, I feel like I've been very, very blessed. And now it's like, okay, how how can I make life a little bit easier for some of my younger athlete friends and how can I support them? It's an evolution. You know, I don't know if that evolution Mm -hmm. happens for everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, um, at some point, I think most athletes do shift and mm-hmm. try to determine like oh, what decide what can i how can i say thank you how can mm-hmm. i give back mm-hmm. to this community that gave me so much yeah. uh, that's why i feel like i am yep. in my career is you know i still definitely race and i still train a lot but mm-hmm. um but to be able to be a coach and to be able to 
um, be a mentor in these different scenarios. Um, but it, it's something that I feel like is, it's not expected, but right. it's something I really am drawn to do. Mm-hmm. But um, not everyone's, not everyone's geared that way. And no, I think that that's, and that's okay. okay. That's you know? okay. And like what that's you're okay. saying about um, this unconventional path, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like for so many folks, they, we feel like we are kind of put in this box mm-hmm. and, you know, we have to check these boxes in order to be quote unquote successful or um, measuring success mm-hmm. and how, it, how, how we have to stack up, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think that that's where, like you've determined, you've, you've figured out and, and experienced is being in these other cultures, you realize that you can find happiness in with very, very little. You know, and so much of it is those wild places that you explore and that community. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an interesting path. I, you know, I was with my mom when she died. And she said something very profound to me. We were, she was laying in the hospice bed, you know, and she looked at me and she said, I'm satisfied. And I thought to myself, that is a great thing to say at the end of your life if you can say you know what I'm satisfied with what I did with my time here on earth you know what I could do for others what I could do for myself the things I got to see the places I got to go and the people I got to meet you know that's I guess the other big important thing I'm learning is it's all about relationships and experiences yeah. I don't care if I live in a tiny home the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It's not about having stuff for me. It's about relationships with people and and experiences that I find interesting. Those are the precious things. And if at the end of my life I can say I've you know, I've been able to enjoy those two things and I've valued those two things, I'll be pretty happy. Yeah. So well, I think we should end it there. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, thank you very much. If um, people are trying to find you or follow along with your, your adventures, how can they best find you? you I'm, on? On, I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm on Instagram, but I'm terrible at Instagram. <laughs> they can call you, and you can give them my email address. How's That's that? That's fine. I'm that, happy yeah. to help. I'm always happy to answer questions. If you're going to Mount Everest or you're headed off towards the high mountains, I'm always here to help. Yeah. So. Well, I have to say, like we came to your... Um, presentation at the ski museum a couple of weeks ago and to take my daughter, my well, take Linda, my wife, uh, to see everything that I already, I already knew that you were this super amazing person. <laughs> um, Linda, I don't think knew, you know, just wasn't as clued into everything that you've achieved and, and, and done. Um, so she was blown away, Aww. but then to see the excitement in Tatum, mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm to um, have someone like you here in this valley for her to, um, you know, stride toward and, oh. and to be, you know, a, a friend and a mentor is, is a really, uh, we're really fortunate to have that. And I think that um, as open and giving as you are, you know, if anyone is interested in connecting with you on any of those adventures or just figuring out a way to get into you know, uphill, uphill skiing or running or whatever, then you're a great resource for all of that. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much.
Thanks for having me.